Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, weirdos. This is part two of our live show, which we recorded back in September at Caveat in New York City. We're super psyched to share it with you. And if you missed the first part of the live show, you can find it earlier in our feed. It's called Illegal Cheese, The Worst Dairy Disaster, and Holes in People and Cows. So enjoy the live show. Next week, we'll be back with a regular episode of Weirdest Thing. Thanks for listening. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while a lot of the fun facts we stumble across make it into our articles, there are a lot of other weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, a podcast from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Claire Maldarelli. And I'm Eleanor Cummins. Great. Awesome. So... On the weirdest thing I learned this week, we start by each teasing a little fact that we picked up in the course of being interesting and wonderful people, or like doing our jobs as reporters, whatever. And uh, we decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first, or which one we put first in the PowerPoint presentation. And then, once we've all had the chance to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and talk about what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. And then we vote, and there's a winner, because otherwise, what's the point? So, Eleanor, why don't you tease your fact first? Yeah, I want to talk about, uh, in short, a taxidermy surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Great. The best kind. Claire? The Parthenon is a ginormous optical illusion. Um, I'm going to talk about an 18th century lady scammer. The best kind of scammer. Who can teach us all (laughs) a lesson. Yeah. That's compelling. It is. But a taxidermy surprise, I don't know what that means. (laughs) Thank you.
if you listen to the show, you start to notice that everyone sort of has their quirks. Um, Sarah talked about worm, uh, you know, cheese tonight, but often she talks about uh, like uh, organ meat. Um, my my favorite topic uh, is taxidermy. So I thought, you know, for this special live audience, why not talk about the greatest piece of taxidermy of all time? Um, but it turned out that there's a horrifying twist. Oh, <laughs> so. This kind of started for me when I was reading this book about Teddy Roosevelt, who um, was a child taxidermist. And it's important to say that that means a child who does taxidermy, <laughs> um, not a taxidermy child. Remember that later. That we know of. So as some of you may know, like his dad was the founder of the American Museum of Natural History uptown. Like they signed the charter for the museum in the family home. So he grew up around like all of these really like weird and wonderful artifacts um, and was very passionate as a child um, about taxidermy taxidermy, um, which he did himself, like he had this whole collection, which he eventually even donated to the American Museum of Natural History. Um, and one of his favorite pieces um, was brought to town in the 1860s. Um, so it's a piece by uh, the Vero brothers, who you may have heard of. Um, they were a very important... Um, <laughs> who's who of taxidermy. <laughs> Absolutely. 19th century France would have been screaming for these guys, but it's all right. If you, if you haven't heard them before, I'll, I'll introduce you to them. Um, so the, the background here is is that uh, they, their father had founded um, a taxidermy um, house, Maison Vareau, um, in uh, 1803, um, and they sort of took up his mantle. And so for the 1867 Paris Exposition, um, which is where you know Napoleon III is sort of showing off his revived Paris, like he's cleared the slums, there's all new buildings, um, they have 50,000 exhibitors, and the Vareau brothers are among them. And so they want to do this really special piece of taxidermy to like celebrate like you know their work and uh, uh, the time, and 50 million people come just to see this work of taxidermy, um, which well, is understandable. There were yeah, no what, podcasts. Yeah, what year at was that it? Time. <laughs> um, there was nothing else to yeah, do. Yeah, there was literally was nothing else to do at that to time. Do. So yeah, so it's on display. I think for like seven or eight months, and in that time, like literally millions of people come to look at it. Um, so uh, I'll put it up here. Um, so, you know, let's, I mean, let's take a moment to really appreciate this, all right, for its artistry. Um, so, you know, uh, what you're seeing here um, is really a, a work of portraiture, but made three-dimensional. Um, they're, you know, really kind of drawing on, uh, you know, famous French artists that you might be familiar with, like Delacroix, a little bit Jacques-Louis David, um, and they're really okay, trying to create this uh, composition <laughs> here. Um, and so there's like, uh, I mean, some sort of problematic exoticism, um, but definitely just just like a lot of intensity um, and people were just like thrown for a loop like they were just like this is so incredible no one has ever done anything like this before we can't get enough of this taxidermy <laughs> and so uh, after the Paris Exposition you know this has to go somewhere um, and the uh, the museum here in New York they decide to buy um, you know like a large collection of the Vero Brothers stuff and this piece comes with it and so that's where like Teddy Roosevelt sees it as a kid like he goes and visits it um, and I got to see it myself. My mom took this picture. Shout out to her photo credit. Um, <laughs> because uh, at the Fourth of July, I, like I went to the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh, um, and I, you know, I was. Uh, particularly hangry that day and I just wanted to sort of get out of there um, but we like rounded the staircase and there it was like at the bottom of the staircase and it is to use a very technical art history term arresting um, <laughs> so so we all sort of paused there and we're staring at it and I'm like wow let, let me tell you about this you guys like I read I read the book about this like I know everything um, and so I tell them all about it and then I'm ready to go you know get lunch um, and uh, and my mom is like you have to come look over at this side panel 
And so I, I walk around, you know, and like there's, you know, information about how like the Carnegie bought it for only $50. How cute. But it costs $45 <laughs> to ship it and, you know, like all of this stuff around. And then on the very far edge of this amazing diorama, um, it says the, the lion bones are real. The camel bones are real. Um, and also some of those human bones are super real. Oh, God. <laughs> what? So how did, this, how did this happen? No one is really sure when the rumor started that that, that was a real dude, but there's been a rumor for a while. Um, it could go back years, um, but the Vero brothers, um, they, they actually had a, a sort of pattern of behavior, believe it or not. Um, they famously attended a man's funeral in Botswana, then came back under the cover of darkness to dig him up, um, shipped him back to Paris, and turned him into uh, a human taxidermy skin and all. Um, so, so why people are surprised that this work also has a little bit uh, of human being inside it, I don't know. Um, but, but for a while, you know, there was some speculation. And um, by the 1990s, a curator at the Carnegie a long time ago, like, did a restoration because, like, you know, works of taxidermy will sort of, like, fall to goop if you don't keep them up. <laughs> um, and so, you know, they were just taking care of it. And she made this, like, offhand note. And this I find, like, really, like, suspicious. She was, like, basically, like, teeth seem kind of real and <laughs> left it at that kind of real she was like this, yeah, this seems like human, human teeth and then did nothing with that information or inclination um so for you know like 25 years we were, there were just like these kind of rumors bubbling in the ether and no one really looked any deeper um but in 2016 uh, apparently the carnegie kind of got like new leadership and they were like we have to figure out like what the deal is with this piece like they were like we're gonna look this taxidermy camel in the mouth and so after 150 years, you know, this piece starts to, to kind of get put in new context and, and analyzed. So, for example, um, for a long time, it had been, uh, like, kept in the um, Hall of African Mammals, um, and it was sort of presented as, like, a scientific piece. And so, like, the first thing they did was they were like, we have to recontextualize it. Like, we have to move it out of here. Like, this is a work of art, not really of science. Um, and, like, putting it in the proper context is important, you know? Like, I, I just have to point out, like, look at how they literally made it look like the camel is bleeding. Like, they, like, painted blood so that it looks like it's being attacked. Like, they were like, this is a, this is like an artwork, um, and it needs to be properly contextualized. Um, but then the other thing they did was they called the Allegheny Medical Examiner, um, <laughs> and they put this thing in a CT scan. And that's where things get uh, a little bit upsetting. Um, so the CT scan revealed that that uh, curator's uh, like deep-seated spooky spider sense was right and that the teeth were 100% real because they were attached to a real human skull. Oh, God. <laughs> so while this is not like a taxidermied man per se, this is a, a taxidermied head that then they, you know, sort of like wrapped in, you know, plaster and things like that. So, so there's a, yeah, there's a man's, a man's head in there. Um, and... And because it is of unknown provenance, they can't really do anything with it. Mm. Like I mentioned that the Vero brothers um, had, you know, like taxidermied uh, a human and sort of documented it because they were like not embarrassed to write that down in their diary. Um, and so they were able to like return that body um, eventually after, you know, like 150 years of exploitation. Um, and so with this though, because they don't know where it came from, because the Vero brothers did not document everything they did, just some of the highlights, um, the Carnegie basically has to keep it so it'll be there for for all of time um, and if you know any like aspiring Teddy Roosevelt children who really like you know killing birds for sport and turning them into beautiful taxidermy like I would super recommend visiting this like it's waiting for you 
Wow. <laughs> Thanks. Wow. Um, well, that's, that's disturbing. I have no further comment. Okay, just, just to confirm, this is the only case where there's a real head. Oh, no, so this is a great question. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, so a lot of people of that era were like, it's totally reasonable to use, you know, real skulls because, like, it makes the face look right. Um, so, you know, like, if you have to dig up someone to get the face of your art right, like, that's acceptable. Um, so it was sort of, like, common um, in, like, the 1860s, like, when the Vero brothers were really, like, doing their worst. Um, but it, it's definitely pretty rare. Like, a lot of taxidermy now is, like, you take the skin of an animal and not a human. And, uh, and then you can, like, put it around, like, plaster and wire. Um, but, yeah, this, this they did. And, and the thing that I think, like, stands out to me is that the Paris um, Natural History Museum was, like, offered the, the taxidermied man, the, the other mm -hmm. um, specimen, and they were like, no, thanks. And that was, like, back then. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. even at the time, people were like, this seems iffy. <laughs> okay, don't you think the Vero brothers kind of felt bad about this? Or they're like, we're taking this to the grave. Like, we are never or telling anyone about this. Like, if I did this, I'd be like, mm, yeah. that is a real person in there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think they were totally fine with it. I think that they saw it as, like, their contribution to science, which is why the Carnegie cool. wanted to, like, recontextualize it, because they're like, this is not, like, cool. Like, yeah, there this are is no not a contribution here. to science. This yeah. is a bad art that was done well. Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Yeah, but the Vero brothers continue to be really famous. Like, Jules Vero has, like, like 10 different animals named after him. Like, if you, like, are into Latin names, you're going to find him everywhere. Um, I, here's a question, which probably has no satisfying answer, but has anyone been like, wow, here are a couple famous taxidermists who did tons of work and who apparently liked picking up random bodies? Were they serial killers? Oh, on that note, I guess that's all we have to say about we'll taxidermy. We'll never know. <laughs> we'll leave you with that question. Thank you, Eleanor. Yeah, for sure. It's really easy to get confused by all of the tech news flying around the internet. On Last Week in Tech, the popular science tech team explains everything and tells you how all of these stories affect your daily life. New episodes post every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, and pretty much anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. We'll talk to you then. So I'm up next with uh, a lady scammer. In September of 1726, Mary Toft had a baby, uh, which shouldn't have been a huge deal because it was her fourth baby. Except this one was a jumble of rabbit parts. <laughs> Here's Mary Toft. I'm pretty sure that someone is vomiting behind her in this illustration <laughs> in shock at uh, the rabbit's being born. Um, so Mary Toft, uh, what happened on this day in September of 1726 is that she called a neighbor to help her labor. Um, and the neighbor was shocked when she gave birth not to a human baby, but to a bunch of pieces of dead rabbit. Um, the assisting neighbor spread the news because this was sensational. Uh, <laughs> local midwife, John Howard, had his suspicions 
but decided he would check it out for himself as a man of science. Um, he described her, Mary, as of a very stupid and sullen temper. <laughs> but boy, did she keep on giving birth to rabbits. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Howard watched it happen, and he was like, wow, there are rabbits coming out of her vagina. Can't explain that any other way. Um, <laughs> And he realized that he was going to hitch his cart to this <laughs> rabbit lady and that they were going to be famous. Um, so he started uh, writing this up in, for medical journals and sending letters to, to all of his friends As in the medical community. Obviously, that's what I would do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and the 24-year-old became something of a celebrity. Um, he supposedly, I just want to be clear, Howard supposedly had 30 years experience delivering human babies. Uh, and he was like, yeah, she's having rabbits. <laughs> um, he wrote... Uh, he wrote that he delivered her of three more rabbits, uh, all three half-grown, um, and he described how they would leap in the uterus before they died, uh, and that they just kept coming. He said, after the 11th rabbit was taken away, up leaped the 12th rabbit, which is now leaping. Uh, if you have any curious person that is pleased to come post, may see another leap in her uterus and shall take it from her if he pleases. Does that mean that he like took a break in the middle of this to write? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now yeah. leaping. Yep. She was just having rabbits all the time. Um, I do not know how many rabbits may be behind. So <laughs> get it get it while it's good. Um, Wait, and these rabbits just came out like ready to run? Like it wasn't like... Oh, they were all dead. Oh. This is... They did not look like this. That's yeah. That's deceptive. Uh, this was a. There was like a, apparently like a lot of tabloids in this era, and she was a tabloid darling. <laughs> um, so there were a lot of uh, illustrations of Mary uh, Mary Toft giving birth to rabbits, um, some of which kind of you know rosied the picture up by pretending the rabbits rabbits were alive. Um, so, and it, the thing is that people did not find this so crazy. Because um, maternal impression was a big theory of the time, which was the idea that if a mother was exposed to something kind of like overly stimulating for her lady mind while she was pregnant, it would influence the baby. Um, the last time I was here at Caveat, I talked about preformationism, which is the idea that sperm or eggs are just little tiny people, and that um, if you're not just literally a copy of your dad, it's because your mom's uterus like malformed you into a bitter lady. Um, <laughs> and this was still that time, uh, so part of that was believing that women with their like mysterious uh, womenly powers could inadvertently turn their children into rabbits. The magic of the uterus. <laughs> right, and Mary had um, a story that she was telling people that she had been pregnant and had tried to chase down a rabbit for dinner and it had gotten away and it was like her white whale. She there just craved rabbit for the rest of her pregnancy. That's what Moby Dick is about, right? right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so people were like, yes, it was sensational, but it also, considering what they believed uh, about where babies came from. It wasn't that crazy. Um, King George I took notice. Uh, he wanted to know what this was all about. And so he <laughs> sent his court uh, anatomist, uh, Nathaniel St. Andre, to check it out. Uh, St. Andre, for the record, does not have a historical reputation for having been a good doctor at all. <laughs> he kind of just fell into it. Um, and True to form, he basically walked in already believing that Mary Toft uh, was 
giving birth to rabbits. And um, lo and behold, lucky him, he happened to walk in while she was about to have her 15th bunny. Um, and using his excellent anatomy skills, he deduced that based on the quivering of her abdomen, um, the rabbits were leaping out of her right fallopian tube. <laughs> um, and Just he decided right that the reason they came out dead and in pieces was because of her uterus crushing them, because that is how childbirth works. Mm. Um, so they knew just enough to be dangerous. Yeah. Like, yeah. Fallopian tube, got it. Right. Um, and actually, uh, probably my favorite thing about this story is that it was a really bad time for people who sold rabbits for food. Um, <laughs> Because the public was disgusted. It's not clear to me whether they were disgusted because they were like, that rabbit could have been my child, <laughs> or if they were just like, ew, now I'm thinking about the lady giving birth to rabbits. I don't want to eat rabbit stew. Um, but apparently nobody ate rabbit while this was going on. Uh, <laughs> and then enter physician Richard Manningham, the third opinion. Um, and he was like, have we tried kind of like isolating her and seeing if there are Some any sense. shenanigans <laughs> afoot? Um, and sure enough, when they uh, put her, you know, in like an inn with no one coming in or out, uh, the births stopped. And um, then a porter came uh, to light saying that she had bribed him to bring a rabbit into her uh, where they were keeping her. Um, and then eventually when Manningham suggested that she might need invasive surgery to deal with the rabbit problem, um, suddenly Mary finally broke down and admitted her lie. And then she, there was this whole, again, tabloid sensation. People did not have a lot to do. Um, <laughs> it was really hard to go on like an apology tour because <laughs> a tabloid would come out and like people would read that and just never read anything again for the rest of their lives. And what were you supposed to do about that? So, so they never issued a correction. Right. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, actually, and actually, it was, the timing was really awkward error. for St. Andre, who had just four days earlier published a 40-page pamphlet called A Short Narrative of an Extraordinary Delivery of Rabbits. Um, so he had a lot of work to do uh, in Oops. saving his reputation. Spoiler alert, he did not. Um, and so it, what happened is that apparently um, Mary had at some point uh, miscarried and had decided that she could use that opportunity to um, mimic a real birth of these these animal parts. And she thought it was a great way to make a better life for herself, make a bunch of money. Um, and that's how she fooled her neighbor by like actually making these things come out of her cervix. Uh, for the doctors who did this professionally, she just had to sew a special pocket into her skirt and wait for them to not be watching her. And then she would like pull out a piece of rabbit. <laughs> and again, they were like, came out of her vagina, can't explain that. Um, so wow, it's really amazing how little we knew about uh, childbirth for so long. Um, <laughs> And uh, Mary went to prison briefly, uh, and part of her sentence was actually that she was paraded in front of the public every day for a small fee. Uh, and but you know, I like to remember Mary like this: Aww. a triumphant scammer, not at all of a stupid temper, sir, but a 24-year-old who saw her ticket out 
and managed to fool two doctors, including the royal physician, uh, into thinking that she was just having rabbit babies all the time. Yep, yep, she deserves it. An icon. Hey pals, looking for super cool popular science merch? We've got you covered at popsci.threadless.com. Pick up t-shirts, notebooks, and mugs with iconic vintage covers and illustrations ripped from the magazine. Plus, check out our podcast store and rep your favorite shows, like Last Week in Tech and The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week. That's popsci.threadless.com. P-O-P-S-C-I In addition to this lovely podcast that we have, we also have a print magazine. Whoa. (laughs) Um, It's really good. You should read it. I would think that even if I didn't work here. And in the print magazine, there is a section called Head Trip, which I run, which is basically all optical illusions and these weird like brain quirks that we have. And so if you think of optical illusions, you obviously think of like the dress and Yanny and Laurel. But God, I am just so sick of the dress and sick of Yanny and Laurel. And so when I'm coming up with these ideas, I usually just like Google search optical illusion plus the theme of our magazine. It yields good results. But I was stuck one day and so I was like, what if I just Google optical illusions and then just search every single page? And if you do that and you get to the 28th page of optical illusions, you reach this building here, which is the Parthenon. Now, if you look at this building, it looks perfect. Right? I mean, those columns look perfectly straight, and that pedestal above it and below it, just they look beautiful. Like, this person, the architects that created it, would have gotten an A. (laughs) Now, what if I told you that there are no straight lines or right angles at all in this entire building? Lies. Impossible. Not true. <laughs> All right, so here's a little backstory about the Parthenon. First, it was built in the 5th century BC, and it was during the height of the ancient Greek Empire, and it was, and still is, a symbol of the power that was the ancient Greek Athenian culture. And it was constructed as a temple to worship the goddess Athena, who was the ancient Greek, who the ancient Greeks revered as their patron saint. So it was meant to be this amazing building that could be viewed from miles and miles away. Um, and so obviously they hired like really important architects to do this and they wanted the temple to be perfect. So as it turns out, the way they did that was to make it the literal opposite of perfect. <laughs> and they had been hinting at this for a while that actually there probably aren't straight lines here, that this building is a little off. And a lot of architects had talked about this in papers um, and different books throughout history. But when it really came to head was when they uh, went through the restoration process in 1983. And um, a lot of uh, people were standing near it and on it and kind of taking all these measurements. And so first we'll start with the pedestal. And so uh, people were standing on one end of the pedestal and a bunch of people were standing on the other and they were like, huh, I can only see you from the knees up. (laughs) And the other side was like, yeah, me too. (laughs) And they took measurements and it turns out that the entire building on each end slopes inward. And so it's like, 
why would you do this? Why would you have architects who are supposed to build this amazing building that's supposed to worship the freaking goddess Athena and then you make it sloped? It turns out that our brains need it to be sloped. Take a look at these two lines here and the lines here. They are both the exact same thing. One is just copied and pasted onto the other side. But if you look at this, do those look straight? No. Not at all. And it's a lot of people think that the Greeks knew that this optical illusion existed, and it's called the herring illusion. And um, not even neuroscientists today still don't completely understand why it exists. And this is like the cool nerdy part that I get to tell you because you all have to listen to me. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, all so because um, these the black lines uh, happen so quickly, it makes our brain think that they're actually moving. So if those black lines are moving, then so is the red lines. And so the only way for the red lines to be moving is if they're curved. Hmm. So then if you just take those black lines away and you put it here, then they're perfectly straight again. So knowing that we were gonna have all these columns um, on the Parthenon and we were gonna view it from so far away, they knew that they had to slope down the uh, pedestal in order to make it look straight when viewed from around miles and miles away. And they knew this? Okay, so <laughs> there's like these two camps of architects and some of them are like, oh, they definitely didn't know this. They just wanted to like create this building that was just like sort of like its own like body sort of. These are some of the, the make theories. It, like lumpy, like, lumpy <laughs> almost. And then uh, there's these other architects where they're like, no, the Greeks were brilliant. <laughs> this is exactly what they wanted to do. Um, and I, I don't know, I'm sort of in the camp that uh, they knew what the brain was doing and they knew that if you viewed it from this way and you had these columns that this is what it would look like. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so. I mean, they were like pretty into math, like a little. Yeah. So <laughs> I feel like it's reasonable to think they would have worked this out. Yeah, and they would have thought about it, you know, done some trial and error. I mean, there was a lot of, like, it was, there were a lot of stakes at hand here. It's the goddess <laughs> Athena. If you're not completely convinced, then we can look at the columns. So those columns also look completely straight, and they're actually known as uh, Doric columns, and they've been replicated many times since. But if you actually look up close at them, they sort of, like, bulge out. Like, they have, like, a like a lump in the center, like almost mm. if you ate like a huge meal and you're sort of like bloated of it. <laughs> um, and so this is actually a type of architecture that is now done over and over again and it's called entasis. Um, and it's done to counteract the fact that when columns of this size are viewed from a distance, they tend to look slender in the middle. So if you did have a um, one that was completely straight, it would actually look like it had like a really skinny waist. Hmm. Um, and so obviously they couldn't have that. It had to look perfect. So they created these like bulged columns and if you stand really close up at the Parthenon you can see them they're like crazy they're like very bulged out um and again this there's these two camps of architects that are like no they didn't know they just constructed it the way they could and um it came out like that and there's this other camp that are like no obviously they knew if you stood away from it it was going to look like it was skinny and so it's really interesting to think that um 
people at this time knew uh, how weird our brain worked. Obviously, I looked, you know, of all the history books and things like that, and there's these bunch of architects that and mathematicians that were like, okay, let's try to come up with a sort of equation that can determine how far away um, you have to stand and then how much of the bulge you can have. And what they found out was the Greeks didn't actually come up with any equations for it. They uh, perhaps maybe just did it over and over again that they knew exactly the right bulge that you can have. <laughs> so <laughs> from this book called Brain Landscape, The Coexistence of Neuroscience and Architecture, um, the authors write, in the many attempts that we have made to find a mathematical basis for the entasis, it has been reduced to all kinds of elliptical, hyperbolic, parabolic, and even cycloidal, sorry, curves, math, uh, math. <laughs> a lot of people here. Um, the immense <laughs> variety of forms indicate, however, that the curve was probably laid out freehand and is purely empirical. Hmm. Really interesting. Mm -hmm. I feel like an argument against it being an accident is that, or like if what they wanted was to make it all bulgy and slopey, they would have step back when it was done and been like, well, and be like, Whoa, we need to do it again. This looks weird. <laughs> it's really straight. <laughs> Um, so the big problem that we'll never really probably find out and uh, solve this issue is that the Greeks never really wrote down the reasons for why um, they did anything that they did. They just sort of did it. It's not like they had ancient blueprints or they didn't, they just never passed on their knowledge. Um, but regardless, the Parthenon has been uh, replicated over and over again and even the Supreme Court uh, has a lot of the Doric columns that we see here. Um, and I think my hot take from this is that if we are going to constantly try to create something that is perfect and the only way to do that is to make it imperfect, maybe perhaps it would be far wiser to embrace life's weird quirks and imperfections instead of fighting them. Wow. <laughs> Was the weirdest thing we learned this week that there was a man inside that taxidermy? That was pretty weird. Uh, was it about Mary Toff's big scam? <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> I, live, I live for your applause. Thank you. Um, uh, or was it that the Parthenon is bulgy. It's a hot mess. <laughs> I don't know. The rabbits, man. All right. we'll take rabbits. it, I'll take it. Take it. Yes. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other weirdos find the show. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popside.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, and our editor, Jason Letterman. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find 
people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.